1: Welcome to the New Books in Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today we have such a special opportunity for a joint point, uh, podcast today between myself and Emily Crandall. Emily, are you there? I am. Uh, Emily, you're going to tell us about the the podcast that that you do. We're going to we're going to share this podcast and share it with Cyril Ghosh, who is not just the author of the book we're going to be talking about, but is also is also the original host of the New Books Political Science Podcast. So, Cyril, are you there as well? Yes, I am. Pete. Wonderful. So welcome back to your podcast. This is yours that we've simply oh. been borrowing over the last couple of years. Emily, Emily, <laughs> would you would you like start us off just a little bit and tell us about the other podcast this is uh, this is going to be on and and you know about yourself as well?
2: Great. So this episode of New Books and Political Science is also a collaboration with the New Books and Global Ethics and Politics channel, which is Produced out of the Center for Global Ethics and Politics in the Ralph Bunch Institute at the CUNY Graduate Center. Wonderful. Of which yeah, I am a, host, a host
0: and you're a, fellow. a
1: fellow. A recent graduate. Congratulations on on uh, defending your dissertation. Thank this you. is. Uh, yes, congratulations on that. Yeah, Emily. For everyone who said that uh, hosting a podcast would get in the way of all our productivity, this is proof that that is not the case. <laughs> This, in fact, has helped you move on towards your completion. Indeed, Uh, Cyril, you have been on before, uh, not just as a host, but also as a guest talking about your research. Um, uh, Maybe we can just get an update on where you are, uh, and and then we'll talk uh, about your book. So, Cyril, uh, tell us, just uh, remind us who you are.
3: Um, Actually, let me first say thank you to both of you. This is great that you're doing this, and I mean, I remember doing this myself several years ago, and... I had a great time and then just, you know, couldn't do it for much longer because life, you know, happened. Uh, but I'm so happy to see that it's thriving and the two of you are doing this and I'm <laughs> grateful and I'm just very happy to be here today talking to you both. Yeah. Um, and and, and um, in terms of where I am, the first uh, interview I did with you was for my uh, book on The American Dream uh it's it 's called the politics of the american dream it 's a long subtitle this was a few years ago now and since then I have had uh the good fortune the uh, circumstances and the context to just develop my research in two other areas um, one of them is um, sort of public law and sexuality and 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 the other is um, citizenship and immigration and so i um, so today we are talking about this book that's that's come out. Um it, the book called Demoralizing Gay Rights. And but fortunately I've also just finished writing a book on citizenship with Elizabeth Cohen up in Syracuse uh, in the political science department, who's a colleague and former dissertation advisor and a friend and and co-author now. I wrote that book with her and um Funnily, I'm actually doing another interview on new books in political science on that book, which it's coming out later this month in the U.S. And that's scheduled for uh, like soon, like in a couple weeks or so. So, so I'm, do- yeah, I'm doing all sorts of things. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Cyril, the, the full uh, title of the book, which is important, is Demoralizing Gay Rights, Some Queer Remarks on LGBT rights, politics uh, in the United States. Uh, there's uh, a lot to talk about uh, the book. Uh, we're talking about this. I think this is also the first podcast to be recorded in three different New York City boroughs. I'm in New York. Cyril, you're in Staten Island. Emily, you are in Manhattan. Because you're in Manhattan, and we always defer to Manhattan, maybe you can start start our conversation uh, a, a little bit. And uh, So so would you like to get started?
2: I would love to. Oh, I was just hoping to hear, Cyril, you talk a little bit about sort of the motivation for the project, kind of why you wrote the book. I We were chatting a bit in the preparation in the lead up. And you mentioned that some of the comments you make in your conclusion aren't quite why you wrote it, but rather the experience of sort of um, dealing with the project as part of your life in that process. And I thought that conclusion was really um, important and very, it gives a lot of interesting context to the sort of uh, wide range of kind of cases that you tackle here. Um, so could you say a little bit about the sort of motivation and what, why you came to this and all that stuff?
3: Sure, Emily, and thanks for that. I mean, I, it was hard for me to write that, that epilogue. It was, I had to say a few things about um, why I take the positions I do. In fact, it's about positionality. And that's uh, cathartic, it's uh, introspective, it's in part like, uh, memoirs. It's, it's, it's confessions. It's, it's, it's a lot of things that one has to think through and, and, and disclose about oneself. And it's not easy for everyone. Certainly it isn't for me. But, um, there's two things. One is how I came to write this book. And, and, and the other is how I experienced the writing of the book. And, It's the latter that I talk about mostly in the epilogue Um, and your question is about that. So I'll I'll, I'll try to respond to that. But I have to say a few things about how I got to write the book in the first place. It it was actually, (laughs) strangely enough, Heath Heath Brown is himself responsible for this book Uh, and and it's, it's, its writing. And I'll explain how. Uh, a few years ago, Heath uh, was involved with the New York State Political Science Association, and uh, he invited me to, uh, you know, join the executive board as the section chair of identity politics for that um, uh, political science association. And since then, I've had the opportunity to, to serve a, like like a couple times as program chair. Um, as section chair of identity politics, and I'm vice president of the NYSPSA uh, next year. And I've gotten quite involved in it. And in at one of these conferences, um, uh, Michelle Chen, who's the acquisitions editor at Palgrave Pivot, she approached uh, some of us and asked us if we had any sort of book projects in mind. And at the time, I didn't actually have a book project in mind on this subject. I was working on a on the citizenship book that I just mentioned. And I had pre- written like a, a standalone piece on, which is a critique of the Obergefell versus Hodges decision. And I write about that in this book. Um, that, that piece came out in Polity uh, a year ago, I want to say. And I had only written that, but since Michelle brought it up and I started thinking about it and I was like, you know, I've been bothered by a few things within this sub-discipline as it were and i started to put together my thoughts and i'm like well maybe there's a book project and sort of i sort of fell into it by accident in 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 a, in a sense and 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 i wanted to write something that was critically appreciative of uh, kenji yoshino's work on covering and i in my teaching and my research i've been thinking about this the question of pinkwashing which we'll talk about in a little bit i hope And these three things together, I was like, yes, uh, there is a book right here. And then it sort of became a book. But, but now to respond more directly to your question, I mean, while I was writing it, I was trying to understand what it is that sort of, you know, that motivates me to write these kinds of things, these specific types of um, critiques and uh, polemics. And I realized that I'm, 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 and I'm, I'm pretty routinely and frequently frustrated with, um, with people around me, both in a professional setting, both in professional settings and in sort of personal settings, uh, uh, trying to ascribe to me not just labels, but also like, you know, uh, uh, recommending, uh, prescribing ways to be in both explicitly and, and less explicitly, more subtly, um, making clear that they have a certain set of expectations about my demeanor, my attitude, my political values and uh, philosophy, and all the rest of it. And it turns out that I, I routinely find myself, you know, dissatisfying people um, because I can't live up to what it, whatever it is that they expect me to be. And and this is where I realize that there are various. Axes of identity along which uh, this happens. So, being South Asian, being immigrant, being queer identified, being left identified, all of these things, um, I, you know, I, I, it makes people wonder if I should be a certain type of person, and. I'm constantly told that I'm like a race betrayer, like a sexuality betrayer, like a, like a political ideology betrayer. And I just can't live up to people's expectation of what it actually means or how I should be as a queer identified South Asian immigrant academic who's left of center. And, and, and those continuous frustrations makes me feel like, okay, I want to say that, you know, people are complicated. People have nuanced views on stuff. I mean, I I I can't be as left of center as my lefty friends want me to be. And I can't be as conservative, politically conservative, as my sort of centrist friends want me to be. And that's just one of these things, right? And there's other things like, you know, uh, my, I mean, my gender performance, I mean, I'm it's, uh, it's not quite clear exactly what I should be doing to be found to be acceptable, both by straights and uh, gays or queers or whatever. So, and that's what I write about in the epilogue that I just can't fit in and, and, and I'm okay with that.
1: Yeah, it's a really powerful way um, to, to introduce uh, the book, the, the, that's broken up into really three different uh, essays. Um, and, and, as you allude to, I wanted to start talking about the first of these. Um, though I, I, when I, when I, when I read the chapter, I kept thinking about this conversation. I knew, I knew, and I, so I'm not going to make this mistake. I kept, I knew I was going to make the mistake and call it the radical creep theory. And that's not what you described. Do not describe <laughs> the radical creep theory. I know that's a book to, that's a book that you will write in the future. But instead, you describe <laughs> radical theory creep, which makes so much more sense and is the, one of the ways that you think about this this phenomenon of <laughs> pinkwashing. So, I wonder if you can uh, talk about um, first pinkwashing for those that don't know the term, and also this this idea of radical
3: theory creep. Um, uh, actually, yeah. Okay, so that's, um, I'll try to talk about pinkwashing first and then and address the question of uh, RTC, the radical theory creep uh, um, phrasing. Uh, <laughs> uh, so pinkwashing actually is a <laughs> term that was used um, in the beginning as a critique of um, the hyper-commercialization of um of of a specific type of breast cancer awareness and breast cancer um, research and one of the things that uh, that the critics said was that whenever the uh, corporations try to sell something and say well okay if you buy this part of the proceeds are going to go to breast cancer awareness or breast cancer research that's a way of commodifying this virtue and you shouldn't be doing this and then the term then gets uh, sort of um, adopted and, uh, and uh, one might even say co-opted um, and, and used in this specific context of, of gay rights uh, rhetoric and gay rights discourse. And, and the people who popularize it are Sarah Schulman and Catherine Franke, Uh, in the beginning, this was around 2011, 2012, when they first started talking about it in these terms. And the concept is actually, it it means the following thing. Um, Some countries, and it's actually some institutions, but mostly it is countries or institutions within countries, um, rhetorically um, posit their sort of pro-gay rights attitudes as one way to demonstrate to the rest of the world that they are on the, you know, one way of saying this is on the on the right side of history, and in so doing, they sort of uh, uh, they juxtapose themselves uh, uh, with countries or other institutions that are that do not share their pro gay rights agenda or attitude, and. In, that, in so doing, these countries vilify or demonize those countries as sort of retrogressive, backward, uncivilized, and, and so on and so forth. So when one brandishes um, or advertises one's own pro-gay rights agenda as a way to cast aspersions on other countries which don't have progressive gay rights... Um, um, that's that specific act of branding oneself as better and then vilifying the the other on the basis of the fact that those people are not in favor of gay rights, that specific act has been called pinkwashing. Now, many countries have been accused of doing this. Um, it's not just countries, actually. Uh, but the paradigmatic case, the canonical case is that of the state of Israel, which has Actively sought to brand itself as a pro-gay rights place, and in so doing, they have, you know, they've recruited brand experts like, you know, advertising agencies like Saatchi and Saatchi, and so on, and and so that that scholars and activists and and uh, you know lots of people on on the political left have critiqued the state of Israel for doing this and pointed out that. Um, among other people, Netanyahu, um, you know, uh, will use any opportunity to show that because Israel is so progressive on gay rights, that anyone around the state of Israel, geographically around the state of Israel, typically Arab countries, who do not have these progressive stances on gay rights, are somehow uncivilized, backward, unenlightened, benighted, um, etc. Et and so, th- so this is the concept: pinkwashing, and. Um, The U.S. has done it. The European Union has done it, as I talk about at some length. Um, uh, They have uh, positioned themselves as the progressive people, and in so doing, um, you know, they have positioned themselves in contradistinction to other countries which are uh, which don't have progressive rights. Now, when I read the literature on pinkwashing, though, it appears to me that um, something happens in those critiques. That some of those critiques turn out to be better than others, and the, the less good ones engage in what are, what I call radical theory creep. It it happens not simply in the prinkwashing literature; it happens everywhere, actually. Uh, but the just to elaborate on the concept, the concept is this: that you know sometimes some forms of theory they start off as like you know quite pointed and analytically rigorous. And they are, give, give themselves the task of, of critiquing one specific thing. But soon uh, there is they experience, um, a version of what, uh, like mission creep, um, as in they just, they, they expand their ambit and, and progressively become somewhat more totalizing. And that in and of itself would not be terrible, but some instances of this kind of totalizing move um, ends up harming the theory itself, and in so doing they often hurt the more analytically rigorous versions of it because they sort of um, they they lend themselves to um, criticism by others who are like, "Well, what are you doing? Your theory is not so sophisticated in part because it is totalizing and and, and it happens in quite, like, quite a few domains, and pink washing is just one yeah, of them.
1: You have this, this great quote um, before we move on uh, related to this, where uh, you write in, in sort of describing one of these types of uh, critiques says, You write, um, where is this on page 18? Uh, but this is not an ism, this is a shopping cart. Um, what is, what is the, oh, what's the problem with the shopping <laughs> cart?
3: Um, let's see a shopping cart is obviously a metaphor (laughs) and it's many different things like disparate things and they don't necessarily cohere and I think that is the problem the uh, section you're referring to it actually comes in my discussion of um, various pieces by Jasbir Puar who has done excellent work actually in in um, <clears throat> In various places, even with pink, pink washing, she has some excellent critiques. But she slips into uh, a somewhat totalizing critique of of pink washing in uh, where she' sort of in my estimation, loses track of the of, of the fact that pink washing is not only about the state of Israel. Pink washing is a larger phenomenon and she insists that it's uh, necessarily Islamophobic in various places she does. And as I show, there are instances of pinkwashing where it's not Islamophobic. It is still pinkwashing. It's just not Islamophobic. That doesn't mean there is no Islamophobic uh, pinkwashing. There is, but you know, not every instance of pinkwashing is Islamophobic. So, and, and one of the things, and, the, and, the, and there's a little quote above it. Let me see if I can find it. Um, um, she talks about pinkwashing as, as one manifestation and practice made possible within and because of homo nationalism. Unlike pinkwashing, homo nationalism is not a state practice per se, it is the, instead the historical convergence of state practices, transla- transnational circuits of queer commodity culture and human rights paradigms, and broader global phenomena, such as the increasing entrenchment of Islamophobia." And she goes on about, you know, the discursive and structure circuits produced by the U.S. and European crusades against the spectral threat threat of radical Islam or Islamofascism. Now I think that there is something to be said about these things, each one of these things. But melding them together this way sort of is it loses its analytical sort of focus and rigor and I try to point that out i don't 'm not opposed to shopping carts but uh, but you know an an ism um, needs some a little more coherence about how things are connected to
2: I think that this chapter is such a good example of the kind of sort of problem of a uh, the positive project of radicalism and I loved how you were talking at the beginning about the idea that right um, people are complicated and I think you make the argument in this chapter really convincingly that also arguments should remain complicated or we should let critique be complicated and that there's this kind of urge or impulse to um, link all the all the injustices together perhaps analytically correctly so, but in this conceptual way, what ends up happening is that they all lose their force of analysis. And so there's this like slippage between um, uh, the analytic force of the claim and the declarative force of it. And I love how you sort of parse that out um, in this chapter. That's not a question. That was just a way of reframing it.
3: (laughs) Thank you. Actually, uh, Sarah Sarah Ahmed has has a great, great piece on – on problematic prox- proximities, where she, it's really fascinating because I think the stickiness of words, like when words are positioned next to each other, she's completely correct about that. I think that they start to acquire associations and family resemblances, even when, you know, and, and none may exist in the beginning. And as a result, <clears throat> excuse me, and I think a version of this is going on. If if all pink washing is always already associated with Islamofascism or Islamophobia, then we forget that countries that are, you know, we forget about instances of pink washing when Islam is actually not uh, part of the dis- discourse, Like it's actually something else. So,
2: well, and as you mentioned, it gives you pause when you're maybe trying to engage the project of like what gay rights looks like or what it could look like or should look like. Do we want to keep going on pinkwashing? Do we want to move into...
1: I think moving on. Why don't, why don't we move on to the next chapter?
2: Well, maybe, Cyril, do you want to just quickly walk us through the the argument on the third chapter and then we can sort of... I'm really interested in actually how you see these two chapters as related to one another because I had a couple... Thoughts about that, but I'd love to hear you talk about maybe just introduce the argument in the chapter and then say a little bit about how they build on one another.
3: Uh, the you mean the chapter on radical theory creep and the chapter yes, on marriage yeah. equality, right? So <laughs> actually, mm-hmm. the, the uh, in some ways of thinking. I'm um, I'm upset, obviously, in in each of these mm-hmm. two chapters. But in the first chapter, I'm upset with the with the right. radicals, right, <laughs> or the self-proclaimed radicals. And in, this, in the next chapter, the one in which I critique the Supreme Court decision in Obergefell versus Hodges, I'm upset with the, the assimilationists. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm upset with the normals. Um, I use this word um, self-consciously. I, I'm deliberately using this word. I'm not happy with the normals and the power they sort of enact um, over the, the, the queers. And I am upset that the United States Supreme Court issues an opinion that is so sweeping and so completely oblivious to ways of family formations that don't fit the traditional mold and i'm upset that the united states supreme court feels like centering this kind of idea of a rom- dyadic romantic love and the idea of procreation or adoption but in any case child rearing as sort of somehow central to the to the discussion on marriage equality and i think that it's an injustice to all sorts of people who either cannot or will not um um, form um, traditional families, and uh, it's oppressive, I think, and it is a it is directly against a sort of a philosophically liberal commitment to neutrality. It is a, it is an obvious endorsement of a very specific conception of the good, and I just don't see why we shouldn't critique it. Why we shouldn't say that? Well, we object. This is. Not what the state should be doing, like uh, positioning one ideal form of family formation uh, upon which uh, the court then grounds the the you know grounds marriage equality in the across the fifty states.
1: You have a suggestion for for how the court could have ruled differently with a similar outcome, but but less sweeping in its uh, sort of social effect. Um, would you describe a little bit about that, how, how the court could have ruled uh, in this case differently?
3: Uh, it could have actually done a number of different things, like a number of different types of legal reasoning could have been used to issue that opinion, and at least in my estimation. But they all can be uh, lumped together under uh, uh, the umbrella of, a, of the following phrase. The phrase is not mine. It's from Cass Sunstein's pretty solid work. On this subject, and the, and the phrase is "decisional minimalism." And I'm grateful to Professor Keith Bybee at Syracuse University for first introducing me to the concept, and we wrote something uh, several years ago in which we used this idea. And, and, and it's very simple. The, 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 the concept is that, you know, when the Supreme Court issues an opinion on a polarizing dispute like this, Typically tries to issue a minimalist decision that is not sweeping, that, that is very narrow in its application, and it deals with one case at a time. And, and sometimes it comes up with, you know, you know, fully worked out legal reasoning. Sometimes it cannot, but what it wants to do is just adjudicate that specific polarizing dispute. And in so doing, it often tries to do this. It tries to make it so that the victorious party does not feel like it has won everything. And it tries to show make the losing litigants feel like they didn't lose everything. And in so doing, the result of that is that it sort of, you know, the court comes across as not necessarily partisan. It sort of tempers the conflict. It does all sorts of good things when the court is not issuing sweeping opinions and instead adjudicates one case narrowly, minimally at a time. So, in the case of Obergefell, for example, um, a number of reasoning, a number of types of legal reasoning could have been used. Like, um, you know, the court could have ruled narrowly on the question of equal protection uh, in the under the Fourteenth Amendment. Um, It could have used just Simply the due process clause of the Fourteenth Amendment to say to strike down as unconstitutional any state bans on on same-sex marriage. It could have done. Um, it could have found, um, as it did in other cases uh, on gay rights, in Romer, for example. It could have found like a clear case of animus against one party. Like it could have found various types of uh, justifications for offering the legal reasoning to issue this judgment. I have nothing against the judgment, but it's the legal reasoning that that sort of entwines the equal protection and due process clauses of the 14th Amendment to discover the right to equal dignity, which is a completely new right and not anywhere written in the Constitution. That, I think, is a bit, um, ab- well, misguided.
2: Well, I was sort of interested in this... Um discussion you have about how the judgment, and this actually comes up in the chapter on pinkwashing as well, this idea that these words sort of do things kind of outside of the intention of the people who um, argue them or critique them. And I was curious about how, I know you said one of the differences or sort of links between these chapters is your. In one sense, arguing with radicals on one hand, and arguing with the the normals on the other. But what 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 else is? How else are these chapters sort of speaking to to one another in the sense of um, tacking between critique or? Um, sorry about that noise or. Uh,
3: I lost my train of thought. You're, you're, it sounds to me, Emily, like you have an interconnection that you found between the two chapters, which maybe it does not occur to me. So uh, <laughs> if so, if that is the case, will you speak a little bit about that? Because I'm, I'm really intrigued now.
2: Well, I think it's really fascinating that in the first chapter that one of the issues is that critique, ha- critique of, has a kind of assimilationist force to it, even when it's anti assimilation um, to me seems to be k- kind of a, one of the central arguments of both chapters, but they work in two different directions. And I think that's kind of really interesting. And it speaks about the sort of, at the same time, the elasticity of assimilation, but also it's kind of rigidity or it's even it's emptiness in a way. And I think that's just a really fascinating. connection.
3: Yeah. Well, it's actually shaming, actually it's shaming it's the with the thing that is going on and actually not just these two cases but also in the yoshino uh, uh, stuff uncovering there is a lot of shaming going on that 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 is it, sort of exercised on the backs of a binary logic that is always already either implicit or explicit and the binary logic is that if you agree with us then you're enlightened if you don't somehow you are benighted and you're on the wrong side of history. So this is going on both in the Supreme Court, which actually, like, you know, go, goes to melodramatic lengths to, to you know, to valorize romantic love, um, fidelity, monogamy, parenting, and all the rest of it. And And in so doing, it kind of sort of implicitly shames people for not being either not wanting to or not being able to form those types of intimacies and relationships, and and a version of this kind of shaming is going on in the in the, among the radicals too. In the case of pinkwashing, like if you don't agree with them, that all pinkwashing is necessarily like you know about U.S. imperialism and Islamophobia somehow, and and you and you want to take a step back and you say, well, you know what, I don't think you should be shaming me for having a viewpoint that is different from yours. I mean, dissent is not something we should be ashamed of. We have good reasons for it. We should be allowed to articulate them, without being sort of you know uh, vulnerable to the charge of like somehow like you know really bad politics. You know, so that's one thing that is common to all three chapters. Actually, I'm really upset with the sanctimonious tone of these articulations, and it's funny because I was recently giving a talk at the University of Ottawa on on this on the Obergefell chapter. And uh, somebody there whose name I won't mention right this second told me that, yes, you seem to be so upset about how sanctimonious these other people are, but you are yourself quite sanctimonious. And I'm like, you are 100% right. I mean, I could not actually be any more sanctimonious than this book. Like it is actually the, the, yeah, it's quite sanctimonious, my critique of other people's uh, whatever the noun is, sanctimoniousness or sanctimony. or
2: <laughs> <laughs> Sancti- Sanctimony? Uh, <laughs> well, you do offer it in the spirit of po- polemic- polemacy, if we, if we can say that. So I think that sort of, you know, lightens the sanctimonious tone a little bit.
1: Yeah, the, uh, we're, we're kind of reaching, reaching the end now. I'm sure that I am going to be placed on the wrong side of history for bringing this great conversation to its close. Uh, uh, The book title uh, is again, Demoralizing Gay Rights, Some Queer Remarks on LGBT Rights, Politics in the United States. Uh, Cyril Ghosh is the author, Palgrave is the publisher. Uh, We've been doing this as a partnership between the New Books and Political Science podcast and Emily.
2: The New Books in Global Ethics and Politics podcast.
1: (laughs) And also have had such a pleasure to have Cyril Ghosh on the uh, uh, call today talking about the book. Cyril, thank you very much.
3: No, thank you, Emily and Heath, both of you, very, very much. I mean, this is a wonderful opportunity for me and I'm looking forward to, you know, seeing the two of you at some point soon.
2: Definitely, and as you can tell, there's much to discuss in the book, so yeah. it's worth a, meet worth in worth the a brooks. Read for the listeners out there.
1: <laughs> okay, take care. Bye bye. All right.